Hey, y'all, this is a fun review we got on Apple Podcast. Such insightful conversations from K.S. Williams. Hearing conversations like these is hard to find. I learned so much from listening to this podcast and enjoy the openness and honesty in these conversations. Great podcast. Yay! That's sweet. I'm glad there are people who like all the openness. That <laughs> yeah, I know. To the Sometimes you wonder if they want to hear how open I'm being. Yeah, that's true. But if you like fun parts, we would so appreciate if you would leave a review. It helps kick us up on the algorithm so new listeners can find the show. Thanks so much. Oh, I'm so sorry. Can we scratch that? Yeah. Can you go back to the whole thing? Because you have a tendency to just be like, well, you did this, and but you're not saying who it is. And okay. pe- we know who you're talking to, right, but you're right. listeners won't. So if you can go back to just like when you first addressed You know, that's cool. I forgot the mic was there. Yeah. I did. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of cool, but <laughs> not really. <laughs> As Coolish. a producer, I would rather you remember it's there. Okay. <laughs> remember yeah. it's there. Okay. From Milieu Media Group, this is Fun Parts. An exploration of sexuality and spirituality for anyone who's curious or convinced there must be more. With your hosts, Becky Patton, Latifa Alatas, Ashley Lusink, Luke Bronner, and me, Steve Weens. I don't know. We finished the last episode and then took a break for lunch. And then I just went for kind of a long walk and was debriefing with my wife. Mm. I mean, I feel fatigued right now. Mm-hmm. I feel really tired. And I I always feel that at the end of this whole experience, but I especially feel it after the last two episodes felt personally exhausting for me. And so I don't really know where we go from there. I mean, the only place I can think that really still feels fitting, and hopefully we can just point the lens away from me for a bit or forever, is the comments, Ashley, you made about how to begin the work of trusting ourselves. That's the loose end that I sort of see out there right now, but... I'm happy to go anywhere. Can I just address your fatigue? Because I think it's really important in the process of healing is when we start opening ourselves up emotionally and start naming things emotionally that we've kept stored and held away, it is exhausting work. Like you haven't lifted a thousand tons, but you have emotionally in some ways lifted a thousand tons. And I think it's one of those things that people are shocked by, wait, this is too much work. It makes me tired. Mm. And I want to (laughs) say... Can you trust your body that your body's actually processing something and your body did just go through a workout? So be kind to yourself, drink lots of water, rest. And so maybe, I don't know what we talk about this time, other than the fact that I do want to talk about trust. I think that's great. But I also think that there's, it's okay to be fatigued. Yes. And be kind to yourself that you're fatigued. And just how much your brain is processing and it, your brain actually needs so much water. Like it's, I don't know the percentage of how much your brain is water, but one thing that's been really interesting to me stepping into this world of parenting is this kind of dual thing happening for me of this whole idea of reparenting yourself alongside of parenting a child. And so there's all these different Instagram accounts that help along that way. But one that I found that's just been like really beautiful is this woman, Dr. Becky, and it's actually called Good Inside. Mm. And it's all about teaching your kids that they are good inside. Mm. And so much of her content, although it's like for how to parent your kids, I find myself parenting myself with that language. And so that's just one thing I want to put out there as far as like, there's some really interesting 
accounts that help with some really tangible things as far as just language she'll use about like if a kid's having a moment of just stopping instead of telling them how to feel about what it is or like put that feeling away stopping saying like i believe you and just like that language of Mm. like that emotion you're having like i believe you like can i turn around and say that to myself about whatever emotions i'm having like i believe me and i'm like I'm doing that work in myself so that hopefully when that time comes that my little one is having a moment, I can have access to that language for her. But I'm like taking those baby steps myself. And so I think there's some of this that's like, it's really small things and it's so like language based. That's actually a great reminder for me of something I kept thinking during the last episode, because you mentioned in the last episode, you made a comment about reparenting yourself. Latifa, you made a comment or you, you told a story about being able to sort of scream no almost into the past for your past self. And I feel like those things are related and I feel like those are practices that are utterly unfamiliar for me. And I would love to just hear more about what that means. Will you go into what is meant by reparenting yourself? I think it's showing up for yourself in the ways that your parents weren't able to show up for you as a child. And so much of that, again, in many of these ways, it's like, this isn't shaming our parents, like any of that. It's more just how as a kid, you have such a finite understanding of the world. So anything that's happening to you when you're younger, it all comes back and is like, you don't have a way to process that. Like, this isn't actually about me. Like, if my dad's working a lot, it's not because he doesn't want to spend time with me. It's because he's trying to provide for our family. But I'm interpreting that as like, oh, you don't want to spend time with me. So how do I, as now as an adult who's still thinking, you don't want to spend time with me, it's like, how can I step back and be with that little one and say, like, I'm here with you now and to be present to that little who maybe didn't understand the broader context of what was happening in their world at that time. That's one example. I'd be really curious, Becky, how you would describe it because it's something I know you use in your work a lot. I think you did a lovely job. Reparenting ourselves is a terminology. Well, it's the internal family systems, recognizing that when trauma happens to us as a child or as an adult, what happens is we go, as you said over and over again, our cortisol floods us. And so I don't know how else to say this. We're not in our full brain. Our brain capacity is shut down for being able to logic and reason. And so think about as a small child, and I'm going to go back to your six-year-old boy because we talked about that in the last one. When a six-year-old boy experiences something about the world and about and is wired to love people and justice and stuff like that and experiences something that maybe was wounding at that age, you have six-year-old wisdom, which is really good six-year-old wisdom. Now, as an adult, you're looking through your 42-year-old lens and like, that happened so long ago. It's just that shouldn't matter. And so what we're doing is we're internally shaming a part of ourselves that as a young child needed care. And so we call them littles. They're these little parts of us. And one of my littles is a protector, just huge protector when I feel threatened by something. And I have to kind of talk my little down. He's actually a little boy because in my era growing up, it was okay for little boys to get big and feisty. It wasn't okay for little girls. I was continually told as a little girl that I was too much or I was too big or my emotions were too big. And so that little part of me took on a little boy persona and basically as my protector wants to come out fighting and just has spitting words. And I mean, I can bite with words so quickly. 
but it's what I realize is it's that little trying to protect me. And so it's like when I feel that feeling in my body rising up, I have this little mantra that I go, I see you. Your feeling is valid, but I can handle it here. I'm an adult. I'll take care of you. See, this is surfing the wave. This is what I'm talking about. You have an ability to transcend the moment and then address it. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> like, but can I say, I le- had to learn how to do that. And that's where I want to say, that's something that at the beginning in our zero episode I was talking about is so often we're afraid to seek therapy in the Christian realm. It's had such a stigma. I still have people that come into my office. I'm a pastor and I do pastoral counseling and I'm trying to help people find help that they can get. And people have such shame about needing to talk to somebody. And I'm like, wait, we're not meant to navigate and have everything all figured out. We're meant to find good journey partners. And that's where I think that we don't have to have something major wrong in our life to go and seek some help. Can we have a third party? And I, the only way I've been able to navigate some of what I've navigated, and I am still on the journey, is through good counseling finding people I can trust to be in relationship with. And it's like, it is an ongoing process. But I will say this, everybody knows that I had sexual abuse as a child. I mean, I've shared that before. In my process of doing, I went into some intense every week therapy when that finally surfaced and I let it out. And I started to look at it. Every Wednesday, I had a counseling appointment every week for like two years. And I was unpacking some stuff. And I did some great work with this counselor. It was unbelievable. It was so helpful to me. But it was my first step. Almost five years later, when I actually started going, I want to start talking about this with other people. The night before the first class that I taught on this, a memory surfaced that was prior to all the work that I'd done. And I freaked out. I was like, you mean there's more abuse in there? And it was when I was five. And I had been dealing with abuse from when I was seven and going forward. And it was at five. And I will never forget, I sat on my couch and I was like, I can't go teach this class. I've got more shit to deal with. I can't go teach this class. I've got more shit. Where did this, how did I not, this not come before? And what happened, I then went back to the skills that my counselor had taught me. And I started to recounsel myself in the sense of going, okay, I've been through this before. I know some of the steps with this. And those tools that I'd had in that deep counseling helped me to be able to navigate how to care for this younger five-year-old that had experienced sexual abuse. And so here's what I want to say is it's not, it doesn't even have, we don't have to have all the details. We don't have to know. Our body's going to tell us when we're ready. And that's where I think what happened, I was just getting ready to have these conversations, open up conversations about and start teaching this six-week class I designed on holy sexuality. And it was like suddenly my body was going, will you see me? Will you see this part? And it was like, I went back to therapy again, (laughs) post-teaching the class, because it was like, I need to care for this five-year-old me in a way, and I need help doing that. Have you heard of um, parts work or interfamily systems? That's it's, what it is. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Dr. Richard, I forget his last name. Well, there's a couple different, yeah, yeah. there is IFS, there's um, Janina Fisher does a model that's called parts work is okay. Janina Fisher. That's who I've trained under. So, yeah. yeah, so I was going to say for like people who might not have access to financing for counseling, especially like with COVID and stuff, and I know a lot of people have had a lot of financial strain. Even for people who are open to it, it could feel discouraging. Like I've had to completely pull back on talk therapy 
because of the cost currently. And so there's some great books and some great podcasts on parts work. And one of the podcasts I listen to is a Tim Ferriss podcast. He kind of like walks Tim through like a therapy session in essence. And it could be like helpful to listen to, or it could be one resource if you're feeling like, how do I even start or how do I begin? And I mean, the other thing too, it's like, I am a proponent of talk therapy and EMDR. I think those are really good tools, but there are other modalities to get in your There's body lots and of them. like plant medicine journey, which I talked about in season two with safe people in a safe way was a really useful tool for me and people I know to kind of start to access those hidden parts of themselves or that they feel really, that are very guarded. I've heard people do breath work has opened them up or meditation. I mean, there yoga. Are, yoga, yoga is one of the number one that therapy actually recommends for a process. And that's Dr. Nicole Lapera. There's no magic one way to do it. Mm-hmm. It's learning how to get into our bodies and trusting our, what our body is actually telling us. Steve, I would love to hear from you on this if possible, because you and I have so much in common and you at least Becky are a body type. So you are an eight. I'm an eight. Yeah. And so I feel like being in touch with your body is something that's probably comes pretty naturally to you. And so I'm curious for you, Steve, if that's something that you're, do you have practices around that? (laughs) Not really. No. I mean, I'm a, I'm a novice in terms of listening to my body, getting in touch with my body, finding out what my body's trying to tell me. I feel like I know more than I used to, but I don't have a lot to add in terms of what was just said. What I would say is as a Enneagram three, my work is to really just slow down and stop from time to time. That's probably my biggest. And I think I have gotten more intentional about that. Slow down and stop producing all the time. That is an Enneagram three thing for sure. I get my worth from producing things, from doing things, creating things, being affirmed by people from doing things. But I've had this really weird kind of pain in my right back that I've gotten, you know, muscle work, massage work, chiropractic work, but nothing is helping, you know? So I've wondered, is that a kidney thing? Is it a kidney issue? So I went to some other kind of Eastern stuff that didn't help. My body is telling me something. But I think I either don't know how to listen well enough, don't think it's worth it to spend the time. (laughs) I'm just being honest. I'm not helping. But I think unless I'm helping by naming what is true for some other listeners, because sometimes it is easy to go, yeah, 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 when you're hearing some of this stuff from people that really have done work. But then to when the podcast ends, you just go, well, I guess that's not for me, you know? Mm -hmm. Confession time. I mean, I don't want to do the work a lot. I mean, I don't either. I mean, this isn't like, yippee, let's dig into our pain. And like, I avoid it too, just to say it out loud. I mean, in the last two months leading up to being with you guys, I went through a serious, like, four or five week cycle and wave of depression and anxiety where I would just cry and cry and cry. And I would be irritated with myself for crying and being sad because I legitimately am so happy with so many things that have been changing <laughs> that feel good in my life. And then I felt even more shame about being depressed because I was like, but I, I'm also happy. Like both are true. <laughs> What's going on with me? 
you know, and it was not fun. It's not enjoyable, but I've just accepted that, you know, pushing it down or hiding it away, it's going to come out another way if I ignore it. And I've learned that the hard way too. And so I think that like, you know, the work is always there. None of us at this table are more or less evolved than anyone else or anyone not at this table. It's just a constant process and constant negotiation or renegotiation, I feel like, like with myself. And I am participating in my life. And I think that's one of the big things that I've realized. Like my life isn't happening to me. It can really feel like that sometimes when things are out of control, but like I am participating and there are things outside of my control, but there's a lot of things that I can like do work in. So like I've realized that I think I want to do that work because I like my life better when I at least participate where I can. So I keep thinking about what you were saying, Ashley, at the top, the self-loathing piece, like being a, a child and then like kind of like falling into that. And I guess I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm wondering, I'm like, what was the benefit of putting shame and self-loathing like guardrails around the theology of purity culture? Like, is it literally just all about keeping kids abstinent so that they don't have sex and don't have children out of wedlock? Like I'm sitting here trying to think like if I was the person in charge of creating the algorithm that became Christianity and I was writing the code for it and I like put it in, okay, if you do this, 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 like you're bad and like default to self-loathing, you know, default to self-loathing. Like I'm wondering like, how did that happen? Is it about control? That feels really sinister and makes me feel sad. You know, I'm not really a conspiracy theorist and that that would be like... Yes, you are. I mean, I am to a point of like, I love good sci-fi and I love ancient alien theory, but like, I know, so good. It's entertaining, but like when I really think about it, like I don't really want to believe that there's like a group of like five powerful people that are wielding their power to like doom the world so that they can benefit. Like... I don't really like going to bed at night believing that. So I've sort of stopped, but like, I love a good documentary about it. <laughs> but I guess what I'm saying is like, I'd, I'm just sitting here trying to think like, I don't have my own children. If I did, the only benefit I could see would be like, I'm thinking I'm protecting them, which comes from a goodwill place. But it's like, how did we let it get so out of control that we thought the messaging of Everything about you is bad. The only good in you is what God puts in you. And you have to get rid of all your desires and all like the things that are about you. Empty that out to make room for God's desires. And I would always be like, what does that mean? When I would hear that kind of messaging, I would be so confused by that. And I remember like praying as a child, being like, God, just give me your desires. Like, give me your desires. And then I would think to myself, man, I like really want to be a musician, but that must be my desire. That can't be God's desire. Or like, I really want to like date this boy, but like, that's my desire. Like I need God's desire, which would be like, don't date anyone, you know, like, and only like, date me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> date Jesus. So like, I guess I'm just wondering, like, even as parents that I like, I believe all your parents loved you and I believed my mom loved me. How do we get on board with that? Like, I guess I've, I'm feeling confused. Like, how does that actually happen? Cause like, you would never tell your children, I'm assuming, like, everything in you is bad, and the only good that's in you is actually not of you, it's of God. I can't imagine you saying that. I hope I never did. Right. But, like, how are we doing that as, like, the third church parent? 
how is that happening over and over and over again? And that's deeply connected to purity culture. Well, and I think it's deeply connected to how we've interpreted scripture. And we've always, for years, we've had scripture interpreted for us, believe it or not, because we've been proclaimed at and declared at versus getting to do the interactive dialogue around it, which is what scripture, how it was originally written, was actually meant to be a dialogue, not a monologue. Hmm. And I think it's interesting being a pastor, you know, and going and preparing a sermon and I mean, Steve, you know, I struggle with this on Wednesday. I'm always like, what the hell? I have nothing to say, you know, and, but that's where I have to be in conversation. If I'm going to preach a sermon, I have to be in conversation with people about it. Like, this is what I'm seeing. What do you see? Because I don't believe I have a corner on the market, but I do believe when I do my diligence of looking at the passage, what happens is I find questions that invite me to invite other people to share their questions. And that's not something I grew up with. I grew up with having the box to fill in with the answer or the line to fill in with the answer versus an answer. And I think people long to put periods on sentences that just need a comma. Because I think about how, like the parenting piece as an analogy, like how much effort it takes to continue to be curious and to wonder and have questions instead of being like, this is just the way it is. Let's move on to, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's an energy element you're trying to bring in that like wrestle if you keep that open. So I'm just saying about layering that onto the church conversation. It's like, it's just easier if we can just fill in the blank and move on, you know? The priest at the church where I'm connected irritatingly always comes back to this. You, You know, you ask any sort of question, he says, that's a great question. I'd hate to ruin it with an answer. Oh, I like him. Oh, it's great. For a while. And then it gets to be like, okay, sometimes I just want you to answer my question. But it doesn't take away my appreciation for the sentiment of like the idea that we're not always going to have an answer. We don't always need an answer. Sometimes we just need a conversation, you know? Well, and I think about the courage it takes to ask the question. Sometimes I have a favorite movie. It's Yentl, and probably nobody around here has ever heard Barbara of it. Barbara Streisand? Yes, you know what it is? Uh, my mom was obsessed with that movie. Oh, I'm so sorry. And I as a child, that. it always made me feel weird. So I never really watched it as a grown you up. You didn't. Oh. But, but it's actually, I feel like it's my story. Mm-hmm. That's what I felt like as a woman. Now I'll she, go watch it. Because part of what she longed to do, she was bringing her questions about scripture. Her dad was a rabbi, her dad dies. And what ends up happening is she runs away, cuts her hair, runs away, and goes into a man's world and pretends she's a man so she can study the Torah, which is what she wants to do. And then, you know, it's got a little love affair thing in it. But there's this song where she sings, like, who am I? It's like, I was meant to ask questions. This is who I am. And if I don't, I'm going to die. And so she had to, like, literally change her identity to fit into a culture to be able to be who she was. And then ultimately she breaks out of that and chooses to be who she is with the cost that it is. And it's like there's something so beautiful about that, a woman in that era, and it was back in the probably the 1800s. That's one of the things that I think is so important is this is not a new story, people wanting to break out of old patterns. It is a story that has gone on for centuries, and that's where I think in Scripture, when we see Scripture as a book that's supposed to have the answers, We don't see scripture as this ongoing story that's still unfolding today, and we're just asked to be a part of it. 
I don't think that I want, I have done this. You know, you peel through and then you go, I've got, I need an answer. Oh, there's the answer. And it lands on who knows what. But I think that was my desire to have an answer. And instead, I think we're invited, can we courageously bring our question? Because religion as a whole doesn't really celebrate question. Mm-hmm. Becky, you helped me remember this, but so my boys are 14, 12, and 12. I have twins. And one of them heard about 69. And it just so happened that Rick was turning 69. That's Becky's husband. Sorry, yeah, Becky's husband, Rick. And we were having dinner, and my kids are at the age where if they ask me something, I will give them the answer. You know, what is this? I will tell them. What is 69? Well, it's when two people put their mouths on each other's genitals. Whoa! (laughs) And then that led to a conversation around the dinner table with Rick and Becky and Mary and me and the three boys. And we're talking about what is 69? Why would people do that? Well, it's kind of fun to make someone else feel fun. And then you feel fun at the same time. And it's great. (laughs) And then (laughs) you reminded me, I had forgotten this, Becky, but you reminded me that there was a moment where one of the boys went, I'm done talking about this. Mm-hmm. And then we were done talking about this, you know. So is that an option at this table? <laughs> yeah. And then later on, one of my sons said, Dad, you know, Ariana Grande has a song called 34 plus 35. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my goodness. No, I didn't know that. But um, so it's not all the way, but it's not nothing. How we're trying to help our kids understand stuff, sexuality, spirituality is, Oh, you want to go there? Well, we'll go there. But then we're trying to give them sovereignty to understand when it's enough, you know, Mm -hmm. and it, and and it was enough. And then we respected that and we moved on. And I think the thing that was important there that I think is so cool is one of your boys had heard that in a context from someplace else, friend and friend. And you can just imagine how they heard about it. Mm -hmm. Oh, 69. (laughs) And I asked, we did ask at the, at the table, I remember saying like, how does that make you feel when you think about that? And one of them got really squirmy and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's okay. But I remember after that conversation was over and, you know, one just hit the wall, couldn't go do any more. It was like, oh, now they have this with their peers perspective and they have this with grown up adults. And that to me feels like a good tension to have. So they got curious here, had a place they could bring it. And then they had actual conversation around it. And I say this a lot to teenagers when I used to go and teach in youth groups. One of the things I would say is, who do you want to be your sex teacher? Do you want your buddy? who's probably not had much, or do you want somebody who's had years of experience to talk to? Who do you want to ask your question to? Hmm. And honestly, I think we underestimate kids Mm -hmm. because when I put paper out there and I say, you can ask whatever you want, I would have stacks of paper that were 12, 15 inches high. They are not afraid to ask their question. They want to know somebody's listening. high school, I was pulled out of sex ed because, you know, it was at my public school. It wasn't, you know, Christian teachers or Christian related or whatever. And so I like bypassed 
the last time I had any sort of sex ed was in fifth grade, which was also a public school. And that's when they just like explained to girls about their menstrual cycle and they like separated the boys and girls. It wasn't really about like sex. It was more about like your body's going to change, like puberty. So somehow I just like, I've heard about like STDs, which like we call them STIs now, but like, I couldn't like tell you all the names or, you know, what they were or whatever. And this is just like a warning story with what happens when you don't educate your kids. Oh, but I'm so excited. <laughs> so I, as a, a teenager, like 17, 18 year old, I did a lot of wilderness backpacking trips out in Colorado and we would go out for like two to three weeks at a time. And when you do that, you have to either bring iodine pills or like a water purification system because you're getting your water, you're drinking water from the river. And if you don't purify the water, you could get something called Jardia, which if you get that, you're basically going to be like using the toilet for like weeks and it's going to be like rough. It's going to be a rough few weeks. So until I was about like 26 or 27, because I got Jardia on one of those trips, I must not have purified my water well enough. I would tell people this story about how I got the worst case of gonorrhea. <laughs> On a on a backpacking trip with a bunch of my friends in the woods, and this I is mean, a moment you get to clarify for so many people <laughs> yeah, in your I, life if they're I, listening. I mean, you guys, it was a solid like nine to ten years. I would share this like somehow, like someone would bring up camping or like something random that sort of connected in my brain. I was like, oh, this one time I got the worst case of gonorrhea. It lasted like three <laughs> weeks. It was tough, you know, like. Oh. And people like would just be like, ooh, you know, like, like, like I could tell Latifa anything. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's anything. why everyone tells me their secrets. And like, it wasn't until I was twenty six or twenty seven. My friend Andy, who I grew up with, goes, Latifa, did you have sex with the river? And I was like, <laughs> no. Like, why would you say that? And he goes, because gonorrhea is an STD. I think you're talking about Jardia. And I was like. <gasps> And immediately, like, the floodgates of my mind open. I'm like, how many people have I told? Of the trail. For the last left? nine years <laughs> that I went on this hiking trip and got the worst case of gonorrhea. And it's just like, that is a funny story. And it does make me laugh. I also, like, routinely until the last few years have confused aioli, which is a, a dipping sauce made of mayonnaise and other things, with areola, which is the... The that can be dipped the in darker too. part <laughs> around the nipple. So I'd be like, gosh, your aiolis are so much cuter than mine. Or like, and I was so confused that the same word was for that. Oh, wait, wait. As it was what is with... the context in which you're telling someone that? Anyway? Yes. I thought it'd be the... <laughs> because like, I don't your care about, I, so good. <laughs> I don't care about being naked in front of my girlfriends and I love all different shapes of bodies. So like sometimes when I see my girlfriend's breasts and they have good areolas, <laughs> <laughs> or a nice shaped breast or whatever. Yeah. I'll be like, you have awesome boobs or like, you know, it's funny because it's just language, right? Like I'm, I'm confused, you know, like I, I didn't know, but like learning is just so important because you don't know like how many hundreds of people think that you got an STD when you did. <laughs> but like, I had a lot of questions mm -hmm. and I didn't know who to ask. And so I learned from like television, movies, and by like sort of hearsay and observation. And obviously I did not retain the things I thought I did. And so it wasn't until after my divorce that I had to like learn about STIs and I had to learn about prevention and I had to learn about sexual safety. I learned more about my body. 
I did ask my friend in my mid twenties, who was a biology major, how like really how babies were made. I was like, I really need to understand like what's going on in the body. You know, like I just, and now kids can Google things, but it's like, is that the best way to learn? There's some good information on the internet, but there's also weird information on the internet. <laughs> yeah, there is. I think you can Google it, but there again, I want to say that's a monologue. It's not a dialogue. Yeah. And the advantage to a dialogue is that you have facial expression, there's space for question, and there's also a different way it stores in the brain. And I don't, I can't remember all the different avenues of that, but there's a different way, different things that fire when you're in a person's personal space versus just using the electronics. So it's, I think that's an important piece. And I want to go, because I think this circles back to trusting yourself and some of this element of this is who do you trust or who did you trust as a child that maybe didn't have the knowledge or the wherewithal to be able to even answer your question. And so what they do is they answer out of fear. And I think that, I wonder if that's even part of how, well, we've talked about it before. The purity culture was born out of fear. It was born out of fear. And it was born out of, if you trace it back, you can trace it back. You know, the sixties were about free love and so much happened. And I think it was the seventies response to what had happened in the sixties. So what would you say, Becky, to somebody who would say, well, we don't want to just give people free reign and free license. You know, I mean, that's a trust issue, right? Like a part of me is like, if I was raising a child, I would hold that tension of like, I want them to trust their own body. I want them to trust themselves. Like, I want to trust myself. I want to trust my own body. And like, I'm going to do my best to make decisions. And like, I wasn't like, you know, painting the town red, you know, after my divorce, but like, I also think I got lucky. Other things could have happened. You know, wink, wink. Yeah, lucky, huh? <laughs> that is I funny. Double entendre. And I know you and I have talked about this too, Ashley. But like, I guess I'm wondering, like, we want to teach people to trust themselves. We know harm can still be caused or happen. Like when we're holding that, you know, like there has been this like monkey on my back as we've been speaking of like the kind of more fundamentalist Christian coming around the corner saying like well, now you're just saying that like, you're your own God. And like, you can't really trust yourself because people make bad decisions and people hurt each other. And like, that's the fear. Do you really think the fundamentalist Christians are going to listen to this podcast? (laughs) No, but like, (laughs) but but you kind of know what I'm saying. It's the fear. It's the fear mongerer. Mm -hmm. And fear is not an all bad emotion either. Like, right. Fear is there to protect us. Yeah. Fear keeps me from like touching a hot fire. Right. So like, I guess what I'm wondering about is how do we also make space for fear at the table without like going all the way to, you cannot trust yourself. You can't trust anybody. Well, I think you said it so well earlier. It's like we start, I mean, it's part of this is I love how you so gently, we have a baby here this weekend. Mm. You guys, this first time we ever recorded with a baby. It's so fun. I don't know if it's fun for you guys having, no, it's been good so far. Yeah. yeah. We're we're figuring it out. Figuring it out. It's been, it's been really fun. But what I love about this is as each one of us that are around the table have taken turns holding or playing with her, we approach her and we ask. And I love that. It's like, do you want to come to me? And if she turns away, we don't do it. But if she doesn't turn away, we kind of then just gently with her mom or dad holding her, we engage with her until she is done. And I think that's where trust begins is at a very young age. And there was a, 
I wish I could remember who said it. It was on Instagram and they said, you cannot expect your child to grow into an adult who is respectful of their own no's if you don't give them a no as a child. And I think that's something that's, that's what we were talking about before. You don't really have a yes if you don't have a no. And so I think there's something very important about teaching children about where their body ends and where somebody else's body begins, where their energy, I think there's something really profound about being able to recognize when a child, I will never forget my daughter at one point, we had some friends in our life, a friend in our life that my daughter, every time this person came over would just like, (gasps) I don't want to, I don't want to be around them. I don't want to be around them. And I paid attention to that. It was something I this person was unhealthy. And so we had to set some boundaries. And later we heard some things that had come out and it's like, but her little spirit knew, knew something that my adult Christianese eyes that there's somebody in need didn't see. And we were really careful to honor that. And I just think that there's something about children already come equipped with things. Will we pay attention? And I think for my generation, I want to say for sure, my parents didn't think I came equipped. That was what they were taught. I didn't come equipped. I came as an empty slate that they had to pour everything into. And I will say there was a huge movement that you have to discipline children in order to guide them because they come into this world not knowing how to make good choices. And I'm like, when you break down that theology and you've got this sweet little one here right in front of us, what does she know? She knows what she is experiencing, which I really feel sorry for you guys when you go home, Ashley, because every morning she gets to have breakfast with all six of us. <laughs> She's going to be really bored with just she you is. and Alan. <laughs> yes, yes. She has an audience. Yeah. I would also just, I mean, I want to say too, I would imagine there were also moments where you needed to discipline your kids. Oh, like, yes. Where they like challenge boundaries or maybe potentially could like cause themselves cause harm. harm. Yes. So like, what's the line between like your child says no to something and acts out in a way that you know is actually harmful to her? Like, how do you interject then? I don't actually know that I really remember totally what I did, sure. but I will say what I observed with my daughter just recently when we were there, her son was really upset at her and he was trying to bite and he was out of control emotionally. And she just very carefully grabbed him by the wrist and says, I'm going to take you over here because I'm not going to let you harm yourself. And she said, it's your emotion is okay. I will sit with you with your emotion, but it is not okay for you to try and hit. Beautiful. And so she says, mom, I just have to make space for this. And I mean, she's, you just, we just have to make space for their emotion. And I just looked at her and I was like, how the hell did you figure that out? I'm still figuring that out. Hmm. But I want to say there are good things in here. I don't think she's reflecting how she was parented. Now, maybe some of it is. I don't know. But I think that there is something to pay attention to what children bring into this world and what we can learn from being with them. And that's where I think there's something so important about multi-generational. And I love the dinners that we get to have with your boys and the conversation is rich. I just think we need all different generations and that's where we can relearn how to care for even those wounded parts of ourselves by observing how caring, how tender you are with this sweet little one. Mm. Can you be that tender with yourself? Can you have that kind of compassion with yourself? It's interesting that you say that because I also am the one who has not held the baby very intentionally. Like I love babies. I love babies from a distance, but it's like, I'm not going to be the one to go grab the baby, you know? 
Why? Uh, maybe just like fear of breaking it or, or like I can't handle a baby that's not happy. Mm. I, it's like, I don't want to be the one holding the baby when it starts crying. Cause I don't have a clue what to do <laughs> with all of that. Yeah. That raw emotion. Yeah. And the self-soothing. Thank you for using that word because one thing I've been discovering and I want to say we're like, we as parents are babies in this. So I also like reserve the right to like put this like thinking of how we're going to do this in pencil because so much of this is untested. But the research that I've been reading about self-soothing is it's actually a personality type. It's not something you teach babies. So there are some babies that will, you put them down and they learn to fall asleep and they're, they're good. Our baby has not been that baby. (laughs) And the way babies are wired is they need their adults to help them co-regulate. They can't self-regulate. And so, so much of the first few years of their life is them coming to you because they don't know how to regulate emotion. All of their emotion is in their body. That's like their first language is body. So they need your body to help them settle and regulate. And that's where like we actually bed share with our little one. And I'm so grateful for that experience because there's a closeness that we share that I can't Imagine physically putting her somewhere else because, like, there's this tenderness there. How do you and, all fit in that little crib? That's just that's, <laughs> that's into fetish. That's kinks. Oh my gosh, we it's still yeah. It's having a king size bed has been like amazing. But that was just a, an unlock for me about how many of us as adults are still figuring out how to self regulate because as kids we were not given that space. And our parents didn't know how to regulate their emotions. So they're trying, you know, like, it's a perpetual generational thing that, like, mm. a lot of these, as I mentioned earlier, these Instagram accounts that I'm finding are like places that are here's how, like, the story you just told about your daughter. Like, here's a new language of, like, how do we hold space for this emotion? Let the emotion play out so that it, the child knows that the emotion isn't overwhelming. Like I think as a kid, it can feel overwhelming, but if the parent isn't overwhelmed by that emotion, it shows the kid that this is safe and we can move through it. It's not scary as we are as adults still trying to figure out like, what do we do with these emotions? It makes me think of cuddling as co-regulating. I mean, there's people that just look for cuddling partners or have like cuddling circles. And I actually think it's really beautiful. They're probably asking for Mm co-regulation. So going back to this, Dr. Nicole LaPera, and I have the book sitting from how to do the work, which I feel like is... Back to your point earlier when we were talking with Tifa about like if you're not from a financial perspective, if you want like free resources, like Mm -hmm. at the holistic psychologist on her handle on Instagram, it's just her whole thing is like here is free information Mm -hmm. on how to do this. And she does have a meditation that's actually about co-regulation where you sit with someone and put your hands on each other's chest and breathe together to help like bring that down. Like it's about teaching your body this is safe. And I think so much of that is things that weren't learned or there wasn't space for in childhood for various reasons because again culturally we were in a different mindset about how parenting worked and mothers having to go back to work and like there's so many systemic things i could go up actually this is gets me really fired up but just the way our system is set up especially in america to not support families Mm -hmm. to be there like when you talked about how in germany there's like security for the stipend for the children for the parents for the parent that chooses to stay home with the child they get a stipend in order to, it's about helping to create the family for until they're four years old. Wow. Think about how different that would be in the United States if we had that kind of support 
instead of parents having to go back to work sometimes days after a baby's born and that sort of connection. So it's just, I think these things we're talking about have major ramifications because it's so much of what we're discussing now is like, how do we find safety in our body? How do we learn to trust ourselves? And it's, we have to reparent ourselves into that space. Well, I think that's one of the things that is so key for even having the conversation about sex and sexuality is so much of what I think sex is, is people seeking comfort. They're co-regulating. They're seeking comfort in another human being. And if there's something we can't offer comfort if we don't actually first experience comfort. And I think one of the most beautiful parts of my own sexual journey has been recognizing there are times when sex is 100% about it's narcissistic. Well, it's mostly, mar- I think in, there's so many ways sex is narcissistic because nobody's having, you're having a shared experience, but it's very individual. It's very different for every human being. But I think there's something about recognizing when sex is just this hormonal kind of physical drive need and sex that is about, wait, I want to call something out of this other human being. I want to find something in them and create something together. So I think there's like this wide range of how you can enter into sex and sexual relations, but you need to understand what your own need is. I think that's healthy is recognizing, oh, I actually do have needs sometimes just for physical, like we call them booty calls, like, um, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. are you awake? Are you awake? You know, but it's one of those things that it's like, that's kind of fun sex too, you know, and totally. it's, but it's, I know what it's for, you know, and it's, and then there's times it's just playing comfort. They're both good for different reasons. They are. This episode of Fun Parts was produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork was designed by the very talented Alan Lusink. All the music you heard in this episode was composed, produced, and licensed by the fine folks at blue.sessions.com. Check out our website at funpartspodcast.com and be sure to follow us on social media at funpartspodcast. Lastly, if you want access to bonus and behind-the-scenes content from this and other Milieu Media Group shows, join our neighborhood at the Patreon link in the show notes. And now, here's a scene from the next episode of Fun Parts. It's like you were raised, it's, uh, for myself, it's like I was raised believing and being taught that there are, we'll say, two stars in the sky. And I believed that wholeheartedly because there was nothing to disprove the theory until I saw it through a telescope and I was like, oh my God. There's and you in, saw there Star Wars. Infinite, and there are infinite two stars over Tatooine and then that settled it. I think we're saying different things. <laughs> <laughs> but when I realized that like how very expansive the universe is, I can never go back to believing there are only two stars.